I know poverty. I, I've been there. And only in America were you, are you able, in my view, to go from where I was in 1984 to where I am now and all the places I've been in between. Uh, uh, America is the land of opportunity if you're willing to work. Welcome to Thinking on Lincoln. I'm your host, Curtis Sheldon, joined with Ryan Haney and Lindsay McSparron, our producer. This is the podcast on 13th and Lincoln, talking about things on 23rd and Lincoln and yeah. whatever else it is we want to talk about that day. This show is brought to you uh, by our sponsor, the Citizenship Award Dinner. They mm. don't actually give us any money or anything like that, but uh, our guest today is going to be the keynote speaker at the Citizenship Award Dinner. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that after the interview. And, uh, and we'll put uh, a link to uh, where you can get tickets in the show notes. You want to tell them who, are, who, the, uh, who we interviewed? Yeah. It is Jason Whitlock. He is a former journalist at Outkick Sports, Fox Sports, and ESPN. Um, obviously, those are all sports outlets. So this is kind of a new shift for him, a new audience for those who haven't heard of him. Um, but for a long time, he's been talking about kind of the intersection of culture and sports as well. So as as that line becomes blurred, he's kind of dove more and more into this, the culture side of things. So we're excited to have him on and hope you all enjoy. Yeah. The reason we wanted to have you on was to, to plug the fact that you're going to be our keynote speaker at the Citizenship Awards Dinner in, in the, at the end of April. So for our, our listeners who... Uh, Maybe you're not as into sports and don't watch ESPN or Fox Sports. Can you just give uh, all audience uh, a background of you know where you come from, what you've been up to for? I mean, it's a thirty it's a thirty year career, so maybe maybe just sort of the yeah. Point. I'm old man. This is I've been around a while, but yeah. uh, look, I, I'm gonna try to tell it to you in three minutes. Let's see if I can do that. Put a stopwatch on me. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I, I went to college, to Ball State University, on a football scholarship. You know, my parents, very working class. My mother was a longtime factory worker for AT&T, Western Electric. My dad started out a factory worker at Chrysler and then became a little neighborhood, small businessman, entrepreneur, opened up a bar that catered to factory workers and working class people. So my background is pretty working class and my point of view is pretty working class. I, I don't, without the football scholarship, I don't know if I would have ever made it to a college campus. I studied journalism while at Ball State. Mike Royko, a longtime columnist out of Chicago, Pulitzer Prize winner was kind of my idol as a kid. I started reading his columns when I was a young kid. And when I graduated Ball State in 1990, I set about wanting to become the Mike Royko of sports writing. And I worked in Bloomington, Indiana. Then I got a job in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. A job in Ann Arbor, Michigan was actually my big break. The Fab Five basketball team was popular then, and I was covering them and writing columns about them. And then I moved to Kansas City in 1994, and that's kind of where I made my name. I became uh, a sports columnist in Kansas City, 
and became popular in Kansas City first and then nationally because of the columns I was writing and, and the internet came along. And so my national profile kind of took off and I, I got a job at ESPN. Uh, in addition to working at the Kansas City Star, I started doing sports talk radio and eventually back bounced back and forth between ESPN and Fox Sports. Highlight of my career was when I was in Kansas City, I think in 2007, I won the Scripps Howard's National Journalism Award for commentary. I was the first and only sports writer to ever win that award. And that was because I was able to write about sports, race, and culture and their intersection in a pretty provocative way. Uh, I was most known for when Don Imus got in trouble for calling the Rutgers women's basketball players nappy-headed hoes. I wrote a column uh, saying, look, I think what he said is bad and stupid, but there's so much disrespect in rap music and hip-hop culture and the thing, the way we talk to each other as Black people that I'm just not sure, you know, all of our attention should be focused on Don Imus. And at that time, Oprah Winfrey really liked my point of view and had me on her show for a couple of days talking about that issue And so that was kind of the highlight of my writing career. And then uh, the past 10 years, I've written and done television work first for ESPN and then for Fox Sports, where I had my own show uh, called Speak for Yourself and left that show in May or June of 2020 and moved to Nashville to partner at OutKick, you know, as some of you that follow closely. I didn't like the business arrangements at OutKick. They were not as presented to me, and so I left OutKick. And I'm about to do what's next, but I'm not ready to tell you yet. (laughs) Maybe you can tell us in April. Oh, I'll definitely be able to tell you. If I can't tell you in April, that's bad news. (laughs) Looking forward to that. I'm glad you brought up Mike Royko. I saw that, that he was one of your influences. What was it about him that you liked, and how did you sort of channel that into your writing? Well, Mike Royko was popular in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, back probably before you were even born. And he was syndicated in newspapers all over the country. And the Indianapolis paper would pick up his syndicated columns. And what I liked about him is he he had a sense of humor. He was tell it like it is. He was in your face. He didn't have any political favorites. He used to beat up on Chicago's mayor and Chicago's politicians. I would say half the time I agreed with him, half the time I disagreed with him. And and he was so popular. He was syndicated probably in 500, 600 newspapers around the country. And he won Pulitzer Prizes that when I switched my major in college to journalism, Mike Royko was my reference point. And I was like, man, I want to be like Mike Royko. I just want to do it in sports. You know, I follow you on Twitter. I noticed the other day you you retweeted sort of an up-and-coming influencer in Coleman Hughes. What other kind of cultural, uh, political influences have had an effect on you? I'm I'm wondering if people like Thomas Sowell uh, or others have had an influence on you in your thinking. Well, I can tell you exactly who have had the most influence on me. And... Royko would be at the top of the list. Uh, a guy named Ralph Wiley that was in the sports world 
uh, wrote for Sports Illustrated, eventually work, work, uh, wrote and worked for ESPN. Uh, I, when I was a young kid, I saw Ralph Wiley on the Phil Donahue show, uh, and he's a sports writer for <laughs> Sports Illustrated, and he was on there debating a Ku Klux Klansman on the Phil Donahue talk show. Again, I don't know, you guys may be too young to even remember and know who Phil Donahue was, but he was like the Oprah of his time. And as a kid, I was sitting there like, oh my God, I didn't look at this black dude talking to these guys on national TV the way that he is. And it just, it, it like opened my eyes like, wow, I can do that. Look at Ralph Wiley. And so later on, Ralph Wiley and I became great friends and he was a mentor to me. And so it, it, it goes from Roy Cole to Ralph Wiley. And then it goes to a guy named David Simon, who created the television show, The Wire. David Simon was a, a longtime newspaper uh, reporter for the Baltimore Sun. That's where his insight into the city of Baltimore and his insight into politics and drug investigations and the police came from. And that's what The Wire show was all built around. The Wire is a TV show that just spoke to all of my sensibilities. It explained the world to me. And so David Simon's a hero of mine. And as anybody that knows, David Simon is probably one of the most passionate leftists. I don't care. His television show was terrific. It had an awesome point of view. Uh, the guy's a hell of a journalist. And then the last person uh, is a woman named Michelle Alexander. And she wrote a book. Uh, called The New Jim Crow. It was about mass incarceration and uh, the drug game and the drug war, America's drug war. Terrific book. And so people, I, my LLC is called RWSA, Royco Wiley, Simon, and Alexander. Uh, it's on my email. Most people, no one knows that other than, than me. People ask me, I'll say, what's that RWSA? What is he throwing that? Anyway, those guys and people have had the most influence on me journalistically. I, I got to be honest. I grew up, my mother is was a union worker and a hardcore Democrat. And so I grew up thinking of myself as a liberal. And it wasn't until, well, it, to me, it feels like liberals just totally abandoned me and my way of thinking as I got older. So I, I wasn't someone who read a lot of Thomas Sowell work or any of the conservative thinkers of the day. It, it hasn't been until the last decade to where I even had an appreciation. And Thomas Sowell was one of the great intellectual minds in American history, but it wasn't until the last decade that I fully realized that I was probably a bit of a Thomas Sowell critic, but I've always just been on a search for truth and a bit, you know, that'll take you a, a lot of different ways along a lot of different paths. And so I, I, again, Roy Cole was my guy in the newspaper. He was my that was the person I looked up to his writing and wanted to be like him. And I think it would be hard for anybody to say whether Royko was conservative or liberal or whatever. He was just common sense. And, and you know, I, I've always tried to just be a common sense person 
far more than have some kind of political ideology. I just want to follow the truth wherever it leads. If it goes left, I'm going to go left. If it goes right, I'm going to go right. Uh, in this moment, in this era we're living in right now, the truth tends to lean right. And so that's where I'm at. You talked about a message of unity earlier, and I'm wondering, have you been influenced at all by Daryl Davis? First time I've heard his name. Oh, okay. So Daryl Davis is, is and I, I didn't hear about him until probably a year ago when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talk, he's an American musician, um, black guy, who over the last, I don't know, 30 plus years has befriended members of the KKK and got several of them, I think somewhere around 200 members of the KKK have, have left the KKK simply because he was willing to sit down and have a dialogue with them. And um, he keeps all of their hoods and robes and I think eventually wants to uh, have like a museum uh, dedicated to the whole thing. Uh, but just a fascinating individual and in my mind, a spokesman for the message of unity that you alluded to earlier. Look, my and I don't take this. This isn't me being defensive or pushing back or trying to be argumentative. But my influences primarily, again, Roy Cole, Wiley, Simon, Alexander. But beyond that, my influences are my grandmother, Lovey Kennedy, uh, brought me to Christ, grew up in the church that she belonged to, 25th Street Baptist Church in Indianapolis. My parents, my father, what I would call a Booker T. Washington disciple, a cast down your bucket, make your happiness, you know, America will give you an opportunity as a business person to create an environment that uh, you can live in and be happy and provide for yourself. And my mother, who, uh, in my view, one of the greatest mothers that the planet has ever produced, my parents divorced when I was young, my mother uh, took a second job and moved me and my brother out into a working class community out of the ghetto. Uh, and just her work ethic and her commitment to her two kids. And so, and then just the working class people that my parents surrounded themselves with and my dad, dad's bar, I, I those are my influences. And so it, it really comes down, if I were to List at the very beginning, I would hope, and again, I'm a sinner and I'm flawed and, you know, there'll be friends of mine that may hear this and go, <laughs> I know some dirt on Whitlock, but at the very top of the list, I, Jesus, I would hope has had the most influence on me, probably followed by my grandmother, Lovey Kennedy, uh, then my mother and father, and then those journalists and other people that I've talked about. But that that that's pretty much it. The and again, it's not that I'm not open because I, I see a lot of people that are interested in me today and write and say interesting things. You've already referenced the young kid Coleman Hughes. I was like, man, I wish I was this thoughtful. And I think the guy's twenty four, twenty five. Yeah, I was an idiot at that age. Uh, and so I see people today looking for ways to make a difference and looking for ways to uh, bring us together and bring us back to our founding principles. And so if I were looking out today and to say, 
who out there is doing things in the media space where I'm like, wow, that's that's really cool what they're doing. It's really brave what they're doing. And people's heads are going to explode when I say this, but it's Tucker Carlson. Uh, <laughs> the guy's monologues at the beginning of his show are incredible. And I'm fascinated how someone from such an elite background can be a voice for working class people. And, and because, again, it's it's a lane that I want to be in and have tried to be in. I want to speak for working class people because that's my background. But to see somebody who isn't from the kind of working class background that I am be that kind of voice, I just have to applaud it and 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 hats off to him and, you know, wish him well and want to support him and hopefully have people, uh, you know, hear what he's actually saying and not fall into the trap that the corporate authoritarian media has laid for us that anybody that says something we disagree with, well, they're racist or they're homophobic or they're sexist or there's something that gives you... Oh, <laughs> Ignore what they said because we've given you this excuse. You don't have to deal with any of truths they espouse. You know, and I, I see other people. I see, you know, Glenn Lowry at, at Brown University uh, and John McWhorter. I don't know if you're aware of those two guys, but they do some podcast. you know, really brave stuff, uh, particularly as black men, too, because you deal with a lot of abuse when you don't stick to the liberal dogma, you know, that they've set up, you know, the big tech dogma, the the big tech and the liberals have combined to stomp out truth by just blasting anybody that doesn't speak their version of the truth as an Uncle Tom, a sellout, a racist, uh, you know, anybody they disagree with is the worst person on the planet and their thoughts are dangerous and poisonous. And so, that's interesting that you that you it brought you brought up those people because I've often tried to make sure I used to fear that I was elevating some of these black voices because they agreed with me, but at the end of the day, it just seems like you know whereas in the eighties Milton Friedman could talk about race and culture and it was it was still okay then it just seems like now. You know, if you're white and you want to talk about race and culture, unless you follow sort of the cultural zeitgeist of, you know, the anti-racism movement, um, nobody wants to hear it. It seems like the only people who are willing to go out and make any kind of controversial statement about race and culture are are black men uh, or, or women like Candace Owens uh, would be an example. Does that make sense to you? Oh, it makes total sense. Look, if I say what I truly believe on racial issues, I run the risk of of being pilloried over social media. To some degree, I probably run the risk. I run the risk of losing my job. It's not quite as dangerous. A white guy can say virtually anything and could potentially lose his job. Uh, and lose his safety in his community and be vilified and canceled, not just for a moment, but for life. For, uh, you know, I, I look at uh, the Creighton basketball coach who gets fired up after his team loses, 
and and starts telling them that you know you can't jump ship on us basically instead and so instead of saying the cliche you can't jump ship he says you can't leave the plantation and it's stupid it it it's 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 something he would have liked to have chosen a better word but there's no racial intent behind it and and the reality is there were plantations that didn't have slaves every plantation <laughs> wasn't and so plantations just not this word that you oh my god if you say it in front of black people we just fall apart and but we've trained kids that if you hear certain words and you you know oh my god you should be offended and you shouldn't allow a person who recruited you again because Creighton's a pretty good basketball program they're not getting leftovers they're getting kids that want to be there so somebody something made these kids hey I'm going to trust Greg McDermott and go play for him but if he says one wrong word in anger during our post game we're gonna we're gonna raise hell and get him suspended and make him have to do some kind of public apology. And so I get it. the risk for a white men is quite high to address any type of racial issue because here's Greg McDermott, basketball coach. He wasn't even trying to address a racial issue. He was just trying to tell his kids, "Don't jump ship on us. We got to stay on the same team. We, you know, we got to stay in the same house." And he just used the wrong word. And he's been suspended. So we've created an environment where everybody wants to have an honest conversation about race. And we need white people to come talk and get in this conversation about race. As long as every word that comes out of your mouth is something we want to hear. <laughs> they never add that part. <laughs> you think that that fear over having to use the right words has kind of changed the way that you I've done your job. You said you've been talking about, you know, this intersection of sports and race for your whole career. Do you think that's kind of the environment we're in has changed the way that you're doing that? Or have you kind of kept it the way you've done it? No, it has not changed me. And that's why I've gone the independent route is because in corporate America and working for corporate authoritarian media, yes, you have to judge every word. Oh, we better not talk about that. Someone could get upset. And so that's part of the reason, uh, you know, I was like, well, man, I need to cut these corporate handcuffs and do my own thing. And so it's been very liberating, despite my frustrations about the way things were handled at uh, OutKick. I'm glad I made the move because I feel completely liberated. I say exactly what I think and believe. I never have to lie. And there's, there's just part of me that just I can't sleep at night if I can't be honest. So I caught a I caught a video uh, that you did for Hillsdale College. I won't be able to maybe address everything that you said in there, but you start out talking about the Charles Barkley commercial from 1993, where he says, "I am not a role model. Parents are role models." And there was a lot discussed in there. You know, one of the things being that uh, over the last hundred years or so, sports has been used to promote unity, especially racial unity. I think the reason that is, is because sports is sort of the ultimate uh, meritocracy. I mean, NFL and NBA GMs don't care what color you are. Uh, increasingly, they don't care what language you speak or, or your national origin. If you can put the ball in the hoop or run a 4-3-40, like, 
They just don't care. Um, do you still think that sports can be used to promote unity, or are we too far? Yeah. No, sports can still be used to promote unity, no question about it. They're not being used to promote unity, though, at this moment. They're being used to promote racial division. And that's because the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, to a lesser degree, but all these sports leagues have lived in fear of Black Lives Matter, live in fear of a Twitter lynch mob coming after them, uh, and so they've chosen to embrace the Marxist critical race theory of Black Lives Matters, and they are being used willingly, gladly, to tear down this country and to promote disunity or division, racial division in this country. They're now a tool promoting racial division, and, and LeBron James is the captain of that ship. Uh, he's he's helping drive LeBron. And let me take it off, LeBron. He's really, it's Nike. Nike is the captain of the ship of all of this because most people don't even realize. Like Nike's bigger than the NFL. Nike's bigger, far bigger than the NBA. And Nike's in bed with China, and uh, Nike wants a global, no borders, United States of America, and they want to be in good standing with the uh, co uh, Communist China Party, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP in China. And so they have their athletes promoting this very anti-American message. Look, Michael Jordan was being true to his values, comes from a two-parent family, comes from rural North Carolina or in comparison to some of the major cities. And my, Michael was doing what was best to sell shoes at that time and being true to his own values. If you look here in the last few years, Michael Jordan, even to some degree, has hopped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon and has participated in the fiction that police are out here indiscriminately killing black men in massive record numbers. And it's 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 like. It's nineteen. It's the nineteen tens all over again. Jordan has kind of co-signed that message, and so all these guys at the end of the day do what's best for their business interest. And for Nike, because it's so dependent on that Chinese market and their one point four billion people that they have to sell shoes to, Nike's in support of an anti-American message coming from its spokespeople. And so Jordan has done a little of that, too, here recently. But where we really come, and you mentioned the Hillsdale piece, and uh, the point I've tried to make and hammer to people is athletes used to be role models. And social media and the zeitgeist have now made everyone, they don't want to, no one wants to be a role model. That's too much responsibility because a role model models behavior that's healthy for young people. And there's some responsibility that goes along with that. Everybody wants to be an influencer. Mm. And an influencer builds a following, and then they direct that following to buy product. That's what an influencer is. It's, and that's what LeBron James is an influencer. He's not a role model. He, he, he 
he somewhat pretends to be a role model, but most he's an influencer. He he invested in his school in Akron, and I'm sure his heart is into it, and he wants to help kids. But he also knows that helps him in, acquire influence and followers. That's good branding, and he's not the first to do it. Jalen Rose had done it years before in Detroit, but we all act like LeBron is. David Robinson had done it in San Antonio. We all act like LeBron was the first to do this, and oh my God. But it's all about acquiring influence and directing more people to buy product. And so the role model thing is just dead. Everybody is chasing being an influencer. They think that's more important because there's response. When you being a role model, there's a responsibility. It's like when you take on the burden of being a Christian. And I hate to call it a burden. Forgive me for saying that. But when you take on, there's a responsibility that goes along with that because you know there are people sitting out there waiting for to catch you doing, <laughs> you're a Christian, huh? You cheated on your wife. <laughs> you're a Christian, huh? Didn't I see you uh, uh, at a strip club or, oh, you're a Christian. And, you know, every sin that you commit, they want to throw up in your face to try to get you to, to renounce being a Christian. and uh, listen, I'm a Christian because I know I'm flawed, because I know I'm a sinner, because I know I need forgiveness. Uh, so, you know, you throw all my sins up in my face. I'm good with it. Uh, Jesus died on the cross to forgive me. And that doesn't legalize me to go out and commit sin. But I, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm some perfect person. In my public life, I want to model behavior that I think brings honor to my name and my family, and that young kids can use and, and try to move them move themselves ahead in life the way that I was able to. You know, I tell people all the time, in, in, in 1984, my senior year of high school, my dad, I was living with my dad. My dad had uh, run afoul of the IRS taxes, and we, we lived in a 400-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment in the ghetto. And I mean, I know poverty. I, I've been there. And only in America were you are you able, in my view, to go from where I was in 1984 to where I am now and all the places I've been in between. Uh, uh, America is the land of opportunity. If you're willing to work, if you're willing to adopt certain values and principles, uh, and, and do some assimilation uh, into the greater, uh, adopt the values that this country supports, you can move ahead uh, and, and you will move ahead. And, you know, our country's history is littered from Andrew Jackson to Clarence Thomas to Jason Whitlock. Bunch of us came from nothing and achieved a whole lot. You know, I, I think overwhelming majority of American millionaires started out, you know, they weren't, they didn't, they didn't inherit that well. They earned it. And, you know, we've created this myth that in order to acquire wealth in this country, you have to be born into it. It's, just, it's a myth. It's not true. I'm not saying there are people that are born on first, second, third base. But even if you were in the dugout like I was, you can you can get on base and you can still second base and you can 
advance to third base on a I forget, why am I forgetting? <laughs> but anyway, you can advance and you can steal home. And that's why I love America. And that's why I want to continue to do whatever I can to support the founding principles and values that made America great. So that's an interesting transition. I, I, I'd like to take it back up to a little bit more fundamental level if we can, uh, because you talk about the values of our country. And one of the things that's interesting to me, so just so you know, I'm a big, I'm a diehard OU fan. Uh, Curtis is a diehard Oklahoma State fan. Uh, we're both, we both went to those schools. And so we see that the college level too, this sort of, uh, you know, the woke ideology, and obviously some of those players are even in college starting to try to build their brands and become influencers. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I wonder, do you think that the education system in America uh, is contributing to all of this, uh, you know, by what they teach in schools, whether that's, you know, adoption of the 1619 Project um, or just a rejection of, of America's founding values and, you know, just to make someone else in our office happy, do you think that, you know, something like universal school choice might help correct that in the future? Uh, do I think they're contributing? Absolutely. Uh, do I think they're driving it? Absolutely. H- having said that, though, I think those of us that are believers in Christ, in old school American values, whatever it is, I think we have sat on the sidelines and allowed it to happen. And I think that we have been cowards. And I, I, I would like for those people that refuse to wear a mask and, and say, this is my way of pushing back, grow a real pair. Because I got no problem with you not wearing a mask or whatever. I get it. But if you really want to be fearless, grow a pair. And we need these institutions that we have turned over completely to the left completely to people that don't believe in God, don't believe in the values this country was founded upon. Uh, We have to engage in the battle of taking back control from them or they're going to destroy our country. And so I get you don't want to wear a mask and that's the easy thing for you to stand on. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm going to show them, you know, and look, I halfway support you. But there are bigger fights than who's wearing a mask and who's not. And I get the mask is symbolic of all the other deals, but we got to quit being cowards. And we have to go back in these schools that are teaching all the nonsense. And then literally, I mean, a school wants to teach little kids about sex. Take that out of the hands of the parents and put it in the hands of the schools, and some 25, 30-year-old teachers. And I don't want the government teaching little kids about sex. The government right now just said little boys, can because they feel like a woman, can go out and compete against girls. I, this is who we want in charge of, of teaching kids about sex? The people that are, 
We got to really man and woman up and get back out here uh, and, because it starts at that level. The, 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 we can't win as long as that side is in total control of educating kids. The country's done. It's over. And that's, you know, I, I say uh, my mom probably gets tired of me referencing her, but she's a hardcore Democrat, but <laughs> loves, loves to consider herself an even harder core Christian. But I'm always asking her, like, hey, how does your politi- politics line up with your Christian values? You're, you always want to complain. Quick to say, you know, this all started when they took God and prayer out of school. And I always say, who did that, mama? Who, who did that? It wasn't Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. I mean, who did it? Blame them. Be upset with them. But it just stops there. Because yeah. like, the people you keep pulling that lever for, they took the God and Bible out of school. So your, your anger stops at some point. And, well, <laughs> I, you know. And so I just, we got to get back in the fight uh, and the sc- at the schools, all the way down to pre-K. Because once they get to college, it's over. I mean, because now they, they're putting thoughts in people's minds and, you know, teaching all this adversarial history. And, te- you know, black people, we've been trained by the left to think black history is tragedy. That's why you will hear so many, well, I didn't learn, I didn't even know about that tragedy. They didn't teach me that in school. And I'm like, do you honestly think that history is just teaching people about tragedies? What about the triumphs? That's what history is really about. That's what most history gets told is about the triumphs. And the, to, to think that a school system is going to teach you every bad thing that ever happened to someone that looked like you, and if they didn't, they they didn't teach me that I must be racist. Crazy. Yeah. Well, and I have some other questions that I'd like to talk to you about. But while we're talking about, you know, schools and, and, and also sports, here in Oklahoma, there was a bill filed this legislative session. It ultimately couldn't get a hearing in the committee, speaking of not having a backbone. Uh, it was called the Save Women's Sports Act or something along those lines. Uh, the idea was to prevent biological males from competing against biological females. Yeah. As someone who has competed in sports at a, at a high, high level, do you have any thoughts on this quote-unquote controversy? Well, of course. I, it's, it's total lunacy. And and I have a solution What's for here? all the boys who feel like women. And, and I don't say this derisively. I'm not trying to be dismissive. But for all the boys that feel like women that want to compete in athletics, do what Bruce Jenner did. Bruce Jenner felt like a woman, competed against men, and dominated. Went all the way to the Olympics. One of the athletes, he didn't have to go compete against women to succeed while feeling like a woman. Now he's Caitlyn Jenner or she's Caitlyn Jenner. I have no problem with it. Whatever your feelings are, I have no problem with people's feelings. That doesn't mean I have to pass rules 
based on your feelings. Right. And so the solution to me is for everybody that was born biologically a man who feels like a woman, follow the Bruce Jenner blueprint. It's already been done. We're not asking you to do something that has never been done. It's already been done. He won the decathlon uh, at the Olympics while feeling like a woman, while competing against biological men. That's the sort of, we don't need to, we don't need to make it up. We don't, it's already been done. So this is just crazy. And it's, it's, I don't understand how we're, we're living in a fantasy world where feelings trump facts and feelings trump the truth. And because someone, again, because the whole, and I'm off on a tangent again, but the whole Black Lives Matter deal, it's a feeling. I feel like the police are just indiscriminately killing black men. I don't care. And no one cares. Well, the facts say that that's just not true. Go look at the data. Go look at the facts. But because we feel this way, uh, let's make all these changes to American policing. Let's defund the police. Let's take the police out of the communities that actually need the police. Let's make the police our enemies. It's just crazy, man. Right. And do you think the, the Black Lives Matter movement you just mentioned, we talked about how it didn't adhere to the facts. Do you think part of that is because of the way it just got derailed when it first started? I know when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling and all that uh, mess started happening, it seemed like the idea of what they were originally trying to push kind of got taken in a different direction. And at this point, it's hard to even really for me at least it's hard to understand what exactly it is that they're pushing for it it seemed like it you know first started as strictly kind of a criminal justice reform police brutality type issue and then it got turned into you know are you un-american or not if you're kneeling or not for the flag and now it's it's morphing into this entirely new new thing do you think that was yeah anti-family that sort of thing right and do you think the the original idea behind it was was flawed from the, from the beginning? Do you think it's just gotten co-opted so many times by so many people who are trying to use it, you know, for whatever it is that they're trying to push? Uh, Black Lives Matter was started by three, uh, and I'm just speaking facts, I'm not passing judgment, three lesbian trained Marxists by, that, by their own admission. And so three lesbian trained Marxists have a philosophy of disrupting the Western civilization-prescribed nuclear family. I'm not shocked. Uh, They're trained Marxists. I don't think their message has been derailed. I think it's been revealed over time. I think that from the outset, it was never about black men, protecting black men from the police. Wasn't about Trayvon Martin. Wasn't about Michael Brown. Wasn't about George Floyd. It, it's never been about any of that. It's always been about instituting Marxism and disrupting Western civilization, nuclear family prescribed culture. It, it's it's a cultural revolutionary disruptor. It was that on day one. It's been revealed to be that on day one thousand and one. I think. Charles Barkley is right. If you want to get to the actual real solution, family is the solution. We have to go back to mom and dad in the same home with these kids that they created. Because trust me, I, I guarantee you, my belief, 
that's going to be the number one judgment God has when when we pass is, well, how'd you handle what you created? Were you responsible for what you created on this earth? Because, you know, it's clear as day and, you know, be fruitful and multiply. That's and and I, I again, I, I failed at this. I have I don't have kids. Uh, but, you know, that is a commandment from God. And so I think he wants you to take responsibility for what you created. And we just haven't done that uh, in the black community in particular and in across America right now. Uh, we're, we're not doing that at a high enough level. And so uh, there's truth in what Barkley was saying in terms of, look, don't look to me to raise your kids. If you have to do them. I, I say this all the time as it relates to Black Lives Matters. The first police officers that a child should be exposed to is named mom and dad. And if the first police officers aren't mom and dad, that kid is in for trouble in this lifetime because there are going to be police officers for the rest of his life that don't love him, that don't have a personal connection to him the way mom and dad do. Aunts and uncles, grandparents, nieces, nephews, cousins, they're not connected to a child the way that a parent is. Every time you start taking away from mom and dad, the two people that created, and you start putting his supervision under the guidance or his he's being supervised for people outside of mom and dad, it just gets worse and worse and worse from there. And so if you uh if if no one in his bloodline or no one steps up to be mom and dad uh to that kid. By the time he gets to the police, he's going to be catching hell because he doesn't know how to react to any type of supervision. He doesn't know what respect is. He doesn't get it. And so Barkley was right in that sense. Uh, And so, you know, in being a role model to, you know, to people in your as a parent, Barkley's got kids. And so what Barkley should be doing is making sure his public behavior reflects well on his kids and that his kids see a role model in their home. If he just does that, if he just tends to his own kids and is a role model to his own kids, he will therefore then be a role model to other kids and hell, he'll be a role model to other parents and things like that. Okay. Like I said, I, I, I disclosed Curtis and I's allegiances earlier if you turn if you turn on the TV and, and the University of Oklahoma is playing Oklahoma State University, who are you rooting for? Oklahoma. Boomer. That's disappointing. <laughs> I love Look, it. I'm gonna tell you the main reason why. I, I I I like Bob Stoops, and I like the Stoops brothers. So that had me. They were you know they were at Kansas State with Bill Snyder, and that kind of had I had some affinity for them when I was in Kansas City. But then and then the last part is. The Chuba Hubbard guy pissed me off a year or two ago when he when he went after Mike Gundy and uh, over a T-shirt, uh, and so that kind of makes me not like Oklahoma State. Okay, that's fair. Fair enough. Have you given any thought? I know you just left Outkick and are kind of moving into a new phase. Um, do you have any idea of what the plans are? Are you still kind of just seeing what's out there? Of course I know what the plans are. Doesn't mean I'm going to talk about it. 
Sure. Uh, <laughs> but I think that, you know, I'll be doing more. I'll be delving more into politics and culture while still also talking about sports in the future uh, and writing about sports and culture and race and politics in the future. Uh, I, I, I think you'll be seeing me do more of what, you know, I've been doing my whole career uh, and, you know, trying to promote a message, uh, be a part of a message that brings us all together rather than divides us. Well, so you're going to be our, uh, our, our keynote speaker at the Citizenship Awards dinner next month. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll plug that, uh, in, in another part of this podcast, uh, just so people can know, know to get their tickets. All right. Well, we're looking forward to having you. Thanks for joining. Take care guys. See you. So that was Jason Whitlock. Um, Awesome. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. So again, Let's just talk about how cool it is that this is the third episode of our little podcast. Right. And we bring in a heavy hitter like Jason Bullock. Things He's seem to be going. Literally on. a heavy hitter, a guy playing college football. Right, yeah. Lineman. I'm glad he didn't hit me. Would have been tough through the computer screen, but. Yeah. So again, uh, Jason is going to be the uh, keynote speaker at our Citizenship Award Dinner. That is going to be Wednesday, April 28th. Uh, there'll be a six o'clock reception and a seven o'clock dinner. It's at the National Cowboy Hall of Fame or the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, depending on how old you are. Um, and tickets are already on sale. So uh, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. And um, hopefully on a future podcast, we can announce who we will be giving the citizenship award to. I think that's very exciting. That could be exciting. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. That yeah. news. Yeah. And uh, keep the reviews coming. I do have a review I'd like to, oh, to yeah. read for Please the audience. Please go for it. So this one, <laughs> this one says, Glad to hear Ryan still has the same poop jokes as he did in college. Such a nice whiff of nostalgia. I'd like to hear about actual ghosts at OU, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it, was, is from a, it says, Love from Smoot. So uh, this is my friend, or my, my wife's friend. She's also my friend. Uh, Stacy Smoot, listening all the way from Rochester, Minnesota. Oh wow, Minnesota! We're national. We are. Let us go. Yeah. So, uh, so we have we have friends who are listening all the way up uh, in the great north part of the country. Um, wow. So yeah, keep the keep the five star reviews coming. Uh, it looks like we had some four star reviews, but people changed their reviews, so that's really cool. Look at them. You persuaded them. Um, yeah, exactly. They decided that the show really is a five-star show anyway. So uh, keep those coming, and we will be back soon with another episode. Right. Hope you else, Curtis? I don't think that's it. If you all, As always, if you have anything you want us to talk about, feel free to leave a review, leave a comment, email me at curtis at ocpathink.org if you really want to. Um, hope you all enjoyed.